So this evening I would like to talk about um, what we're practicing here, which is Maranasati, being mindful of death. And um, this has been part of my practice since the beginning of practice some 30 years ago. Uh, when I first was introduced to meditation was outside the Buddhist uh, context. And then I was looking for places to practice in San Francisco and somebody suggested, encouraged, I go to San Francisco Zen Center. And so I went there and they would, um, they would, they didn't ring a bell when they were calling you to practice. Um, they had a big wooden block that was hanging up, like thick, very thick and big. And they would, they would kind of hit the block. Actually, it was more like this. And this was, when you started to hear this, then you know it was time to come for the meditation. This was the call to meditation. And then slowly it would get faster. And then faster. And if you weren't in the door, you didn't get in, right? And so it was, so I learned to get in the door. And, uh, and but what I appreciated as I practiced a little bit in Sen Center, both here and at Tassajara, was there was something written on the big block of wood called the Han. There was something written that came down through the tradition from uh, Japan, and it said, Great is the matter of birth and death. Great is the matter of birth and death. And it said, life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken, do not waste your life. So that was a strong call to practice. Great is the matter of birth and death. And birth and death was always hyphenated. It wasn't two things, it was connected, right? There's no death if there's no birth. There's no, if there, and there, there's no birth if there's not death. They're connected. Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. So I always found that a very profound call to practice and moved me, touched me, this kind of call to awaken to this great matter of both life and death. And so for me, from the beginning, death seemed to be part of practice, of what Dharma practice was about. <clears throat> and uh, um, it's also acknowledged in many other traditions and cultures the importance of death and death as part of religious practice. Anybody ever celebrate Halloween? Right? Did you know Halloween originally in the Christian tradition was a death practice? All Hallows Eve, All Saints Eve. It means hallowed evening or holy evening. And what the original celebration was a pray prayerful, prayerful, can't quite say that prayer, prayerful spiritual bond between those in heaven and those who are alive. Right, that's what All Saints Eve was about. Or in the Spanish tradition, the Day of the Dead. Family and friends pray together for and remember friends and family 
uh, members who have died and help support their spiritual journey after they have died, right? The connection with life and death, this life and death all hyphenated, connected, may be greater than we know the potential, at least as it's understood in the Day of the Dead. Or in the Japanese Zen tradition, there's a, a ceremony called Sagaki. Sagaki is a ceremony for the spirits of departed ones. And it summons forth all the restless spirits and pacifies agitation and violence within and without within and without, includes reading the names of close friends and family members who have died. And I want to ask you, this is about this technical question, the sound, is it a little raspy? Could we turn it down like a notch or two? Thank you. Okay, I'll keep talking. They're a little better, seems to me. Thank you. Um, and so this ceremony, Sagaki, um, is talked about uh, Kobenchino Roshi, who was one of the, I don't know if he was, an, he, was he had his own temple, he was an abbot of his own temple here in America. And he says, the ceremony makes a statement about how to deal with negative things, negative happenings, negative parts of phenomena. And we expand our awakening to the darkness, right? Awareness is expanded into all of existence, which is some which is unseen, unknown, and unthought. And when one does this ceremony, Right, the doshi, one of the officials, um, says, welcome hungry ghosts. It's welcoming the dead, welcoming hungry ghosts. Um, be at ease, the vaguely known, the unconscious, and the unknown receive the best food. Right, so you give your best for them. Receive the best food, welcome, be safe. And it's the acknowledgement of different understandings of what happens when we die. And different traditions, different cultures have different understandings. And we don't, in my tradition, my understanding of Buddhism, we don't say one's right and one's wrong. We understand that they all could be true and they all could speak to people at different times in different places in different cultures. And so when this ceremony happens, it's very similar, they describe it very similar to what we're doing. They say the process of the ceremony of setting a protected space, inviting the shadow in a ceremonial space in which it can be safely held and meeting it with everyday kindness through our bodhisattva vow is an enactment of our deepest compassion. So we're opening to the difficulty, we're opening to what hurts or what's painful or what's um, intolerable at times, especially death. Death is one of the most difficult, tragic events that happens for all human beings, right? And they're saying, but, but when meeting it with everyday kindness through our bodhisattva vow, it's an enactment of our deepest compassion in practice, we have to be able to enter hell. In practice, we have to be able to enter hell for the benefit of, su of a suffering being, whether it's for ourselves or for other suffering beings. The deepest compassion is to feed the hungry and nourish the unsatisfied in body, speech, and mind when the opportunity presents itself. So this is part of what we're doing here. We're learning how to contemplate our, our suffering and the suffering of others and open to it and inquire into it and learn about it and see what happens for us and stay present with our 
kind heart, first of all for ourselves and for everyone. And birth and death, birth and death, all hyphenated, all one thing. Do you know how many people were born in the last second? Four. At least that's what the Buddha Google said. Four people, four births every second of every day. Four births every second of every day. Four new beings are emerging. And if you've ever been at a birth, it's quite something. I mean, uh, you know, I've been at the birth of my daughter and it was like, she just showed up. It was, it was wild. Like this little being comes out of this other human being and they're here. I remember, now I'm riffing a little, but I'll riff personally. I remember my mother kept saying, do you want me to come visit when the baby's coming? When the ba-? And I'm like, no, no, we're fine, we're fine. Do you want me to come? She kept, she called up, she lived in LA and I was here in San Francisco with my wife and and she said, are you sure you want me to come up? And I'm like, no, we're, we're good. And then this baby was born and it, was, it wasn't going back, the baby. And you, you don't just put it on hold for a while. And I remember going home and saying, I think you should come up right now because I had no idea how to take care of a baby, really. You know, and I learned quickly, but it was very, it's very striking because we were all babies that came out of somebody else and, and then here we were and we weren't going back, right? So there are four births every second of every day. Uh, there are two people who die every second of every day. Two people who die every second of every day, two people are dying. And of course, this multiplies to like 250 births a minute or 105 people who die every minute or 15,000 people are born every hour and 6,316 people die each hour or 360,000 people were born today in the 24 hour and 151,600 people die each day. Now these figures could have be they're a little old because I wrote this talk a few years ago, so maybe the figures are higher or lower, I don't know. But, but it just gives you an idea of the reality we're living in as human beings and what it means to be born and to die, right? It's not uncommon to be born and it's not uncommon to be die, to die. But the whole experience is quite precious of both life and death. Because it's, in my language, it's magical that we're all here. And it's part of the great privilege of sitting in this seat is we get to look at you and get a certain perspective like when I'm talking about birth and death I get to see the eyes of life that's sitting in each person and the life is right here and of course you could all look around sometime and you would see you've seen it in other people it's just what is that is part of practice what is it that enlivens the eye what is it that enlivens the body what is it that enlivens the heart and mind because part of what we're doing as we practice meditation is discovering the truth of who and what we are and what reality is and seeing if we can uncover the potential for awakening that the Buddha discovered and that he saw was possible for all human beings, for each of us, Whatever we're difficult, whatever our difficulty is, or our pluses and minuses, or our dukkha is, whatever it is, which we all have our pluses and minuses and our dukkha, but we also have the potential to wake up 
if we learn how to get here and pay attention and pay attention to life and death. <clears throat> and so in Buddhism, death is an important part of practice. It's not just one thing. It's, uh, if you read the stories of the Buddha, the Buddha, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is the story of his death. And there's a whole long story in the Dikkha about the death of the Buddha and what happened. Because he knew he was going to die. He had some intuition. Like he, his mind and heart was quite awake. And so he had certain capacities that are possible for us as human beings. And one of the capacities he had was to know a little bit about what was happening, what was coming. And he knew he was going to die. And when he realized he was going to die relatively soon, a few months, he w started going ar around to all the different groups that he had um, taught, the people who had followed him, uh, monastics and lay practitioners, householders. And he gave last teachings. He didn't tell them he was going to die. He just went around and did it. He just, uh, he just went around and he was giving teachings. And his main teaching was Sila Samadhi Panya. Sila Samadhi Panya. Which is the eightfold path of, of, uh, of virtue, of uh, concentration or unification of heart and mind, and wisdom. And that the eightfold path, you know, of right... right um, speech, right action, right action, right livelihood, um, right um, effort, right concentration, right, right effort, right, right mindfulness, right concentration, and right uh, intention, and right view, right? That's the Eightfold Path, and I gave it to you in the order of virtue, sila, and samadhi, um, unification, and panya, wisdom. And these were all pieces that he felt that's what he taught when he knew he was going to die, was how to live. This is what he knew about how to live. How to live a, a, a wise life, an awakened life, a real life, a, a human life, and a life that cared for oneself, but also cared for others. Because remember the and as I said before, teaching of mindfulness is not just an individual teaching, it's a collective teaching. It's all, all the teachings of mindfulness are about internal and external, and both internal and external mindfulness of body, heart, and mind. <clears throat> and so he taught about how to live life about what's important and had people look at what they care about, value, and what do they want to do with their short time alive? Because as we've said, it's only temporary. And my experience with practice also is part of why, what... Um, uh, I ended up having a, a good deal of experience uh, with death because of practice. Um, and I'm not sure why I was drawn originally, but I was. And I remember I'd done some long retreats. And I you know I came back from one retreat and I saw that the Zen Hospice Project had just started in San Francisco. And I thought, okay, I want to do that. I want to see what it is to take care of dead people, dying people, excuse me, dying people, and to work in that kind of situation as part of my practice. And so I went and applied, and they uh, turned me down about, meaning they didn't answer my phone call about seven or eight times, and I left a lot of messages, and finally I got a hold of the guy. And I'm like, uh, I'm interested in doing this. He said, well, we already did the training, so it's too late right now. We may do another training in a year or two. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yes, uh, sorry. But, you know, sometimes we need some practical help. 
And if you're willing to do that, maybe you could do that, like going to get medicines or equipment and dropping them off. And I'm like, yeah, I'll do, I'll do anything, I said. He said, well, you, ha- you have to come in and meet with me first. And I had to go in and meet with him. This is true, I'm remembering this now. And uh, it was uh, my friend, Frank Ostaseski, who was one, one of the founders, along with Martha DeBarius of the of the Zen Hospice Project. And I had to come in and talk to him because he wanted to make sure I wasn't too crazy, right? Because they didn't, you know, they had enough problems. They didn't want people who were a little too outside the box. And I was outside the box a little, but not too much. And so he said, yes. And then he said, okay, you can help and we need this and that. I said, fine, call me when you need help. And Three days later, he calls me and he says, well, could you do a shift with a dead, per- dying person? And I'm like, uh, yes, I could do it. It was Sunday, I remember. And, and, uh, and I went in and I thought, okay, he'll teach me when I get there, right, what to do. And I got there and I was introduced. This was, they didn't even have a, a facility yet. This was at Zen Center. They had taken in this woman, Stella, who was dying. And uh, she had a room in Zen Center and they took me up to the room and Frank introduces me to Stella. And then Frank says, okay, I have to go. And he leaves. And inside I'm going like, oh shit, I have no idea what to do. And, but I thought, okay, I know how to meditate. I'll be here with Stella. And so after a little while, I, at some point, I, I said, uh, you know, Stella, I, Stella, uh, I don't really know what I'm doing, so please tell me if you can. And she laughed. She said, oh, we all need a little help sometimes, dearie. And, uh, and that's how I learned how to do hospice work was first being trained by Stella, who was dying. And, uh, and mostly it was just hanging out with Stella and just being there with her, not doing much. It was more about being than doing. And that's a whole long story, Stella, beautiful being, beautiful. Um, and so I spent time with people who were dying and then people who had died, because people die when you're doing hospice work, that's part of the deal. And, uh, and I even spent time, one, we had one friend who was, uh, who was in the Buddhist community and, uh, and he died and we uh, sat with the body for three days, which is also something very powerful to do with a dying person if you have the, the wherewithal to do it. It's not right for everybody. I'm not saying everybody go do hospice or go do, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this is what I did and I'm telling you some of the things that happened. But but also just sitting with the dead body was very powerful because the body is not static. Death happens and the body keeps dying, right? One day, two days, three days we sat with him and you watch the body keep changing as it starts to deteriorate. And we'll talk a little more about this and do a little practice because it's a very traditional Buddhist practice to contemplate uh, the deterioration of the body after death, one day, three days, five days, a week, three weeks, a month, a year. That's a very traditional practice we're going to do some of here. And so I got a little more familiar with being around people who are dying and people who are dead, dead bodies. Actually, I got called in three weeks ago, somebody who I was friends with and uh, worked with a little bit in another tradition who died very suddenly. She got a diagnosis and three, three weeks later she was dead just a beautiful being, beautiful, dynamic, young woman, young meaning 47 or 50 maybe. But, um, and, uh, and I was asked to sit with her body after she died and I did and it was very powerful, it's very powerful because 
who knows exactly what happens with consciousness, right? Something, it's not, at least in my experience, it's not all done immediately when the body dies. The body's dead, but what's happening to consciousness, not clear. I mean, I have some feelings, ideas, but that's not what we're doing here. But I'm just saying, it's very powerful. And it was the fact that I was asked to come sit with her body uh, was a gift because it puts life in total perspective. I mean, it was like doing a long retreat, a long silent retreat. But it wasn't a long silent retreat. It was just being with death. And death tells us about life because they're connected. And other experiences, I've been with my parents when they were dying and, uh, you know, was able to help care for my mother as Nikki just did with her mother. Also, my mother at her house when she was dying and kind of take care of her and, you know, uh, be with her, which is really most of what it is, just being with her. And even when she was unconscious, being with her, speaking with her, wishing her well, you know, offering metta and loving kindness and, and love. And, uh, and then, you know, and it's also, you know, it's, it's often very serious to be contemplate death, but it's also has a humorous part to it. And here's one thing that, ha you know, my mom was unconscious for a few days before she died. And all of a sudden, we're, I was sitting there, and all of a sudden she kind of woke up and said, well, what time is it? And I didn't even have a watch. I'm like, I don't know. I'll go see. And I went to see, and I come back, and then she's unconscious again. I mean, it was like, who cares what time it is when you're dying, <laughs> mom? You know, but, you know, that's what came out. It really, there was a lot of stuff there. Uh, and, you know, yeah. My dad, too, when he died, that was quite powerful. And my dad was older. My mother was in her mid-70s, which is not that old, but old enough to die, for sure. But my dad was 91 when he died. And that's, you know, and he'd had it. He was like, I'm tired of this. You know, he he was a little, at times he would say, can you help me, can we, can I get out of here? And I'm like, I don't think I can help with that, Dad. But I assumed he knew he could do something if he wanted, but he didn't. And and finally he, he died and it seemed like he was happy he was dying because life's not so much fun when the body doesn't work right at the end. And... Um, and uh, I remember um, bathing his body, you know, after he died, to get it ready to be taken. And, uh, and a very striking event happened for me, which is, it hit me that the, the good thing, he's not an old man anymore. That's what went through my heart and mind. Oh, he's not an old man ever anymore. And I realized I'd, been, I'd fixated him as an old man in my mind. But of course, I'd known him as many different men over my life and his life. And he'd just been an old man for a while, and he'd been a younger man, a younger man, a walk, working man, and a this man, and that, you know, dad, a good dad, a rotten dad at times. Not really rotten, but just, you know, I had my fights with him at times. But, but all of those had been temporary. And being an old man was also a temporary idea. And it was like I saw my mind let go of that fixation and all of him was all of who he was was here in my heart and it wasn't just the old man but everybody had died who had lived and everybody who had lived was alive in some way shape or form in my heart and mind hmm. so Buddhism often emphasizes this moment, reality, being with things as they are. 
and death is part of things as they are. It's part of human reality. As we said last night, we'll, we'll keep saying, it's just, it's normal. That's the piece that's hardest to get. It's normal. You know, like having a cold sometimes is normal, and feeling great sometimes is normal, and feeling unhappy sometimes, it's all normal. And life is normal, and death is normal. And this congruence of birth and death is quite precious. Whatever's enlivening these bodies is quite precious. And so it's very, also very humbling to contemplate death. Have you all, did you notice that today in the inquiry? That it can be very moving, very touching, can actually bring up a lot of emotions, tears, grief, and that's normal. That's not abnormal and it's not a problem here. It's part of what comes with our being heartfelt human beings, being sensitive beings, being people who care about things, who are touched by things, who have the heart of kindness right here. <clears throat> Ajahn Chah, who was my teacher's teacher, was once called to the home of a woman who was dying, right? And, uh, and she wanted help, she was dying. And he came and what he did was bring a teaching and I'll read you uh, what he said. He said, now determine in your heart and mind to listen with respect to the Dharma. So what he had to say, he said, it's from within the context of the Dharma. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read uh, uh, Ajahn Chah, but I'll give my commentary woven into what he says. And he said, during the time that I'm speaking, be as attentive to my words as if it was the Buddha himself sitting in front of you. So he was getting very serious with her, like take this in, this is for real. This is the Dharma. This is, in my language, no bullshit. This is what we, this is why we came here to practice, is to really hear the Dharma, Dharma and to wake up together. And so he said, today I have brought nothing material of any substance to offer you. Right? I, he's saying, I don't have anything for you. I don't have any, I don't have the right medicine or the right food or the right clothing or the right iPod or anything that you could want. Right? He said, only the Dharma, that's what I have to offer. He said, listen well. Understand that the Buddha himself, even with his great store of accumulated virtue, could not avoid physical death. So here's also a key piece about Buddhism. It's a human being practice. It's an animal practice. By animal, I mean like every animal or every living being. It is born, it lives, and it dies. And so, and even the Buddha with his great store of accumulated virtue could not avoid physical death. When he reached old age, he relinquished his body. He let go. This very lump of flesh that lies here in decline is the truth. He, he has a word here, sakadharma, the truth of this body, and it is the unchanging teaching of the Buddha, the unchanging teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to look at the body, to contemplate it, and to come to terms with its nature, to come to terms with what's true, to come to terms with reality that these bodies are born, they live. It's a totally amazing to be alive in my humble opinion. And, and I have my own near-death experience, so I know a little bit about what's possible about not being alive. And it's just amazing that we're here at all. 
And it's totally magical, in my opinion, right? And we want to come to terms with the fact that this, this, what I'm touching, holding, does not last forever. It lasts for a while. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100. And then it's poof. And that's not a mistake. That's not because we did something wrong. It's the nature of the way things are. And so Ajahn Chah continues, he says, the Buddha said that rich or poor, young or old, human or animal, and I would, really what he's doing is including all beings and he's being more specific like about economics or about age or about um, uh, uh, species, human or animal. And of course we could use any of the other particulars which are all part of sitting in this room. You know, whether you're a man or a woman or a or someone who identifies beyond man or woman, or whatever your sexual preference may be, or whatever your race may be, or whatever your religion of origin may be, or whatever your uh, educational achievements may be. You know, if you're a high school dropout, which I was, and uh, and or if you're a college graduate, which I later became, you know, it's it it's all. He's saying that Buddha said that uh, rich or poor, young or old, human or animal, no being in this world can maintain itself in any one state for long, no matter what the particulars are of who you are and who we each is. It doesn't negate the particulars, but it also points to the inclusivity of that we're all here together. <clears throat> and um, he says um, uh, no being in this world can maintain itself in any one state for long everything experiences change and estrangement meaning the difficulty of things change even when we don't want them to even when we got it we have it right things change and this is a fact of life, he says, this is a fact of life that we can do nothing to remedy. That's the Dharma. This is a fact of life we can do nothing to remedy. But the Buddha fed the, said that the fact we can... Um, but the Buddha said that what we can do is to contemplate the body and mind so we see their impersonality see that neither of them is me or mine. That's basic, good, deep Buddhist teaching, right? We contemplate the body. The body is not who and what we are. There's a body here. We have a very intimate relationship with the body. We generally take the body to be me. Maybe it's not you. Maybe there's something else here that's you that's not just the body. And maybe it's not just your mind, right? He says, see that neither of them is mere mind. This truth doesn't apply to you alone. Everyone is in the same position, even the Buddha and his enlightened disciples. This truth doesn't apply to you alone. Everyone is in the same position, even the Buddha and his enlightened disciples. They differ from us in only one respect, and that was in their acceptance of the way things are. They differ from us only in one way. They learn something about how to accept the truth of the way things are. They saw that it could be no other way, he ends his talk with. And so you hear the paradox of the Dharma coming into alignment with the truth. And what's asked of us as part of our practice is to keep investigating what's true, what's actually here, what's going on, and what are we taking to be I, me, and mine that might not be I, me, or mine, that we may have a very close relationship 
with, a very intimate relationship with our bodies. We're responsible for our bodies. We need to care for our bodies, no doubt about it. But it might not be the essence of who and what we are. It may be just part of the terrain of birth and death. And so death might be more not as discombobulating as it often is when we begin to practice with it and come into contact with the truth of the way things are in terms of birth and death. This is uh, Suzuki Roshi, who was the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, Japanese man who came over and practiced here and changed Buddhism in this country tremendously. He changed this country tremendously. Um, and um, I forget who wrote this, but it's in a book about Suzuki Roshi. David, I believe his first name. Does anybody know who wrote the book about? Pardon? Snyder, thank you. Um, uh, he says, I went up to Suzuki Roshi's room not long before his death, right? Because he died at Zen Center. And uh, I went up to Suzuki Roshi's room not long before his death. He was in bed, extremely weak, his, son, his skin discolored. He bowed, and I did the same. And then he looked right at me and said, not with a loud voice, but firmly, don't grieve for me. Don't worry. I know who I am. Right? This is when he's dying. He says, don't grieve for me. Don't worry. I know who I am. And that's the potential of practice. Because at least, in, again, this is, you're getting some of my opinions and especially my humble opinion, Suzuki Roshi was as awake as anybody I've seen uh, in this last hundred years. He was, he was the, re the real thing in my language. And it takes a certain kind of practice to wake up. And so what we're doing here is Dharma practice the sitting and walking and eating as meditation, and then the, the investigative practice, the inquiry, the talking, the listening, the staying present. We're practicing here to wake up so we can discover the truth of the way things are. And it's very poignant to discover the truth or the reality of life and death. Because generally, and I'm just speaking very generally in the, in the Western American culture, nobody wants to deal with death. Death is to be avoided. Death is to be denied. Death is to be ignored. Death is to be uh, uh, bought off. If you have enough money, you can keep buying it off. You can get all these other good things and then you don't have to think about the way things are actually. And of course, when you have a death in your family, it's very powerful. And it, it doesn't, there's no buying off then and then we grieve or we're sad. And there's, sometimes there's a lot of debate around that grief, sadness. Uh, in, in the Buddhist tradition even, uh, it's said um, that when the Buddha died, some of the monastics were okay and some were grieving. And the ones who weren't grieving said something about the people who were grieving. They said, well, what's the matter with them? Didn't they get the message? Didn't, didn't they get the teaching? Which I always didn't like at all um, because they're both true, right? There's something normal about it and we can understand it and it's what happens. And it's still, loss is also true. The Buddha is not here as in the same way anymore. He's here in different ways. He sits up here, right? And he's 
part of why this lives is because of the Buddha, right? This is the Buddha's birth place. He birthed this place 2,600 years ago. And through all these human beings in all these different countries and cultures around the world that have ended up right here right now, not ended up there, they're still everywhere and still going in all these different countries and cultures. And so the Buddha knew something about um, emptiness and letting go and the way things are, but also about the, the difficulty of letting go. And there are different stories. I'm sure more will come when we're going about the, how the Buddha helped people who were grieving about dying. He didn't say to them, oh, you shouldn't grieve. It's all empty or anything. He never said anything like that. And there's a story, you know, the, sometimes in Buddhist traditions it's talked about everything is empty or it's all, it's all a dream. And that Buddha even said things like that. It's all just a dream. It's arising like bubbles in a stream life. And, that's, and then it just poofs. And there's a story about um, the poet, Japanese poet Isa, who um, he and his wife, they had their firstborn child died shortly after birth, and then they had a daughter die uh, less than two years uh, later. And he wrote this little haiku, and he said, the world of dew, D-E-W, which is talking about the, the effervescent world, the empty world, the world of dew, is just the world of dew, and yet, and yet, and you hear the beautiful paradoxical um, poignancy of the fact that it's all just a bubble in a stream appearing and disappearing like we are. We are just bubbles in a stream appearing and disappearing. And yet, and yet there's something very poignant, very moving, very touching about this human life. And I'll end with uh, a quote from one of the Tibetan Rinpoches who said, according to the wisdom of the Buddha, we can actually use our lives to prepare for death. We can use our lives to prepare for death. <clears throat> we do not have to wait for the painful death of someone close to us or the shock of terminal illness to force us into looking, into looking at our lives. Nor are we condemned to go out empty-handed at death to meet the unknown. Nor, nor are we condemned to go out empty-handed at death to meet the unknown. We can begin here and now to find meaning in our lives. Here and now to find meaning in our lives. We can make of every moment an opportunity to change and prepare wholeheartedly, precisely, and with peace of mind for death and eternity. In the Buddhist approach, life and death are seen as a whole, W-H-O-L-E, life and death are seen as a whole where death is the beginning of another chapter of life. Death is a mirror in which the entire meaning of life is reflected. So contemplating death, awakening to life, Let's sit for a couple minutes, please.
you for your kind attention. We'll have a period of walking practice now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.